You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. Created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Television is self-defeating. It's a multiplier for the industry. It increases the price, but doesn't decrease demand. The drug war began with the process of colonisation. The current measures are based on fear. Good afternoon and welcome to Encyclopedia on this uh, soggy Sunday afternoon. Another soggy Sunday in lockdown Melbourne, lockdown for the second week, second time. Uh, and I hope you're um, doing okay with how it's all going. And also a special um, sort of uh, shout out to all my fellow 3CR presenters uh, presenting and producing their shows from isolation, from wherever you've set up your your studio. We were planning to be back in the um, studios uh, in the next um, week or so, um, but of course then uh, we're locked down again, so not sure uh, when we'll be back in the studios uh, again. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not fantastic content coming out of 3CR uh, every week. Um, thank you very much to Freedom of Species who are on just before uh, this. Uh, you can find out more information about Freedom of Species at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, where you can also find the program pages for all of the shows, uh, podcasts, social media links, uh, websites, etc. 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 Um, the Smith Street Dreaming uh, special is a retrospective of the past seven years of the uh, Smith Street Dreaming Festival, uh, which usually happens on uh, on Nidoc Week in Smith Street. Uh, was on yesterday, and you should be able to find a podcast of that. Also, uh, if you look up the um, the North Melbourne flats, uh, there have been a few three CR uh, shows that have covered um, some of the different aspects of that. Um, or w- what looks like it was a, a, a violation of, of human rights. And I think there are going to be uh, further investigations and complaints made into that incident um, uh, in the coming weeks and months um, because of the heavy reliance on the police and the police's uh, sort of uh, Kafka-esque bureaucratic nightmare that unfolded uh, there. This is in Psychedelia and on the program this afternoon we're going to be uh, chatting about a few things. Um, I sort of got a bit muddled with time. I don't know where we are. We had our fifth birthday. Happy yeah. fifth birthday to in Psychedelia. <laughs> Five years of broadcasting every Sunday on 3CR. Um and that was two weeks ago when uh, we're also hosting, or I was hosting um, the uh, Entheogenesis Australis live uh, YouTube event, which was 11 hours uh, streamed of uh, talks, interviews, uh, panels, uh, and pre-recorded content. Um, and on that, um, we actually premiered the AO, uh, latest AOD Media Watch um, segment, uh, which was uh, on a piece called, well, the title is Being Skewed Over by the Daily Telegraph. This is what I did, uh, where the founder of AOD Media Watch, website is aodmediawatch.com.au, uh, Dr. Stephen Bright, who's uh, an addiction specialist over at Curtin University uh, in WA, uh, went over to New South Wales um, during the coroner's inquiry uh, last year uh, into the deaths of a number of uh, young people at festivals uh, the music season prior to that um, and found that he had been sort of 
lambasted on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Um, and we're going to be playing that segment for you on the show this afternoon. But I thought I'd get um, Steve on the line, well, on the Zoom, I should say, <laughs> um, now for um, just a, a quick catch up. Uh, how are you going, Steve? Going good, Nick. Thanks for having me. And, you know, thanks for uh, producing these AOD Media Watch video podcasts. They're, they're incredible. They're, they're, they're awesome. Thank you. Well, first up, um, the AOD Media Watch um, segment with the uh, Daily Telegraph. One of the things that we sort of ended on uh, was: was there anything that you were going to um, go further on? Sort of, there, it didn't really look like there were any pathways other than sort of uh, legal uh, action, which would be costly, and they'd probably win because of our poor laws in Australia. Um, is it pretty much just sitting as? Yep, that's that's what media is like in Australia. Yeah, it, look, I, I feel like the vlog that we did or the vlog I could be with the cool kids and call it the right name um, <laughs> I feel like that was that was closure for me that was the final opportunity to pull it together and get you know the other people that were involved Monica who was at the coronial inquest and get everybody to sort of tell their story and it, it did still feel somewhat vindicated to have so much support coming from outside of the Daily Telegraph, you know, outside of the Australian Press Press Council. um, So many of my colleagues were just so supportive of of the action that I'd taken and, you know, stood up for myself. And, um, you know, I think we've really – what what – what it's made me realise that we've really got each other's backs in this in these sorts of situations, and so if it happens to one of my colleagues, I'm you know I would be absolutely behind them, hundred percent supporting them, um, because we just can't let the media do this to us. It also shows how much of a disconnect there is between um, the stories uh, that are told on behalf of mainstream Australia by the mainstream press, uh, which is uh, you know apparently my sort of understanding of mainstream is that you would be speaking on behalf of the the majority, I guess. Um, a voice that is the loudest in Australia, and um, not just not just the loudest in in a way that's like talking over others, but is is about that conversational process. But more and more, we're finding that the mainstream media are um, a, a, an ever smallening crowd of ever louder voices of people who are um, more sort of aggro and opinionated and less. Um, grounded in actual facts about what's going on. I think we've seen that demonstrated um, in a couple of drug policy issues um, that have been uh, unfolding. Um, pill testing, I mean, that's what you were over in New South Wales for, uh, for that coroner's inquest. Um, pill testing has been such a divisive issue uh, in Australia over the past few festival seasons. Uh, and we've just seen that the National uh, Drug Strategy Household Survey has come out um, and uh, the majority of Australians now, 57%, uh, support, actively support pill testing. And it's not that uh, that means 43% uh, actively don't support it. It's a smaller number than that. I think it was 30 uh, had it in front of me before. It was in the in the thirties, so that means there's a yeah, so number. Some of people, people remain undecided, so exactly. so it's not it's not a clear number. So yeah, I mean that's an uh, that's another example here where. Um, I think in the, in the mainstream press and from particularly loud commentators, especially on uh, television, um, I'm just thinking about the number of times I've seen, uh, you know, Channel 7 news crews, for example, show up to a festival uh, and sit, situate their camera at the gate of the festival, pointing at the sniffer dogs. And that's the whole story they're going to tell about 10,000 people's wonderful day out, uh, about all the uh, talented um, Australian musicians that are on display that day, all of that. And the story they want to tell is, 
this and they're probably going to like punch, um, you know, pill testing in the side there as well. It's just uh, ridiculous. I, I, think uh, with, I think the Daily Telegraph represents the extreme spectrum of um, being out of touch with the public majority, not only with pill testing, but a range of other issues. You know, Sky News in television is at the other extreme. I think with pill testing, a lot of the other media, certainly my experience at the New South Wales Coronial Inquest, was there was every other media channel was actually doing positive pieces on it. So even Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, um, the, the the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, there was there was general support. To me, I, I felt like you, I knew uh, that I was expecting the results that we saw in the National Drug Strategy Household Survey the day I was watching Sunrise and Koshi was on board. You know, if Koshi's <laughs> on board with pill testing, um, I think we've sold it in the media. And so, you know, there will always be a story that's going to sort of oppose it, but that's normal. I think it's important that there's stories that look at it from different sides, but this thing with the Daily Telegraph was different. They were not interested in hearing the evidence. They just were pursuing one particular law Line and that was their policy line, and they weren't going to consider any other evidence. Which seems like more of a, uh, a thing that politicians do, not journalists. But um, uh, maybe that's uh, you know the matter of uh, sorry. Is the News Corp still a, um, a broadcast outlet or just the political wing of certain? No, look, there's plenty of uh, good journalists out there as well that um, uh, work for News Corp. And God, it must be frustrating sometimes to be those people. And hey, salute to you people if you are listening or ever tuned in because. Wow, that must be hard sometimes. Um, some of the other uh, figures that came up in the Australian National Drug Strategy Household Survey um, was drug use um, generally up in almost all, all categories. Uh, I think, uh, what have we got? Ca- cannabis, 10.4% of the population to 11.6%. Uh, and that's recent use, so past 12 months of use. Uh, cocaine, 2.3%, uh, 2.5% to 4.2%. That's fairly significant. Uh, MDMA, 22 to 3 uh, Ketamine, 0.4 to 0.9%. So these are all um, jumps by a couple percentage points uh, up. And over the 20 years or so that the strategy uh, survey household, the household survey has been run, um, it hasn't, there hasn't been huge fluctuations. We sort of see 0.5 to 0.1%, uh, 0.5 to 1% um, a fair bit. But I don't know, are you surprised by this uptick over the past um, three years? Look, it, it is surprising, but at the same time, if you look at the data over the entirety that it's been taken, there are little upticks and downticks along the way. And so it's hard to know whether this is just a little uptick and will go down again and sort of average back out soon. For me, what was quite surprising, for me, the standout one, were, were cocaine that makes Australia the highest per capita user of cocaine in the world now. In the 2016 data, um, cocaine overtook MDMA for the first time as the second most used illicit drug, and you know it continues right. to climb. So clearly, cocaine is popular in Australia. MDMA continues to be popular. Uh, that uptick in ketamine is is interesting as well. Um, so, but you know, in t- when you start looking breaking down the demographics, what's really interesting for me is younger people are drinking. Drinking less, they're smoking less, they're actually using less. Often, when I tell people, 
people this information, they'll come back and say, oh, yeah, that's because they're using other drugs. But no, the data says that they're not using other drugs. In fact, young people, uh, based on this data set, are showing that they're using less alcohol and other drugs than ever before in recorded history since we've been doing the survey. And it's the older age groups that are using more drugs than ever before <laughs> in recorded history. And so, you know, while these, while these older generations are on Sky News, uh, you know, lecturing the young people about their drug use, meanwhile, they're going, you know, into their back studio green room, <laughs> racking up lines of cocaine, um, lecturing the young people about taking MDMA. So it all seems a bit, all seems a bit crazy, you know, in terms of um, what's going on when you break it down in terms of the demographics. For me, the other thing that was quite interesting was um, increasing public support for injecting rooms as well, which is something that we've talked about quite a bit on AOD Media Watch. Yeah, well, um, the latest piece from AOD Media Watch, um, which you can read at aodmediawatch.com.au, is on the uh, um, the reporting around the announcement of the second, um, oh, well, uh, the end of the trial of the Melbourne Supervised Injecting Room, and that one of the recommendations is to establish a second one uh, around uh, the Queen Vic market. Um, and uh, you've got some details. If you, if, if anybody's listening right now, you want to go read it. AODmediawatch.com.au uh, is the website. We've done two recent pieces on the uh, the injecting room. The first one was about a month ago. Uh, that was written by me, and that was the second complaint. Now, so the the piece that you you sort of let the audience know about the latest blog that's been released was on my first complaint to the Australian Press Council. I've got, I'm going to become a serial complainer now. So Good. I made a complaint. I made a complaint to the Australian Press Council about uh, the Herald Sun's coverage of the Melbourne injecting facility because they had footage of a man who had overdosed and then. Um, did an interview with him, you know, sort of straight after the overdose. They didn't blur his face. You could clearly see who he was. Um, and in addition to that, they provided data that was misleading. They said, you know, the prices of houses were going down in the local area, which didn't take into account that it was actually going down, uh, you know, on a medium price similar to what was seen in, you know, surrounding suburbs. So it wasn't out of the ordinary. It was misleading. And more importantly, it wasn't in the public interest for um, this person to be put on TV or put on, uh, in this case, on the internet, um, you know, clearly being identified who he was. And the press council once again sided with the Herald Sun saying they didn't see a problem with, um, you know, with interviewing somebody just after they'd overdosed on heroin. They, they didn't see a problem with that. And so um, that was a bit concerning. And then the most recent piece that's just come online uh, was looking at um, – the, the, the report that you just mentioned, um, which demonstrated the efficacy of the injecting room and, and was proposing for a second room. And that was written by uh, Jared, a pharmacist. And he was really um, noticed the way that Channel 7 and Channel 9 News had must have missed the memo on how it was effective and how the uh, and, and you know the, the how, and why this provided a rationale for a second injecting room and that was based on them doing box pox uh, with people you know in local areas saying so what do you think about it, an injecting room being set up next door to your business and of course they didn't get um, you know particularly positive answers from people and it gave this impression 
that the public was not supportive of the injecting room. And the report that had just been released showed quite the opposite. It said there was strong support. There were, and, and, you know, here again in the National Drug Strategy Household Survey, there is strong support. So, again, it seems like the media in this case, Channel 7, Channel 9 News, are just kind of out of touch with the public opinion. And, it, you know, if, if you take it... Oh, it makes me wonder um, where they're getting their um, primary sources from and, and who they're sourcing their information from and how the networks of uh, information work because um, having, you know, followed the uh, supervised injecting room quite closely over the five years of Psychedelia's uh, broadcast from the uh, debates before, uh, from the establishment through the trial and now at the end of it, um, I know that there are certain community groups there that with ties to certain political parties um, with people who have run for those political parties and you can see um, that certain people have certain connections and then you see their story told, uh, you know, it just sort of start, you start to go, well, is is the journalist uh, doing their job? Are they going and asking everybody or do they have the answer that, that, that they already want broadcast and are they just finding the people to fit that mould? Um, and that surely that's what the Australian Press Council should be looking at. Is the journalist doing their job ethically? Because uh, all their terms of reference, everything, it's sort of, when you read it, you sort of, it sounds like nice words. It sounds like um, the, the sort of thing that you want to uh, see, uh, ethical conduct. But then uh, it seems like in these past two situations, they still manage to wriggle it around and make it that the... Uh, uh, that the press is sort of never wrong. Yeah, well, well, particularly I thought particularly in this last case, so the the piece with the Channel uh, Seven and Nine News, where they'd got their what, the way I think they'd sort of worked around the you know the, the regulation guidelines was that they were interviewing people. It's just they weren't interviewing any experts. They were interviewing the people they wanted to provide support the narrative that they were wanting to put out there, and you know the narrative that they were trying to put out was, you know, nobody saw this coming. Everybody's been left in the dark that there's going to be a new injecting centre in Melbourne. And the people that they were interviewing clearly didn't understand, you know, how how this um, harm reduction strategy even works. So one shop owner said, you know, uh, we could come around and someone's shooting up in our shop. Hold on, mate. That's actually the whole point of having an injecting room um, so that they're not shooting up in your shop. Another person said, uh, you know, the minute you allow users out on our streets, it's really concerning um, as if, you know, people were, were going to be using on the streets as a result of um, the the, medic, uh, the the injecting centre being there. So they clearly selectively picked people that were going to support the narrative that, oh, wow, everybody should be worried about that. It's And it goes back to, you know, something you and I have talked about on this show time and time again, the moral panic. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of this is just is fueled by moral panic. We know that the moral panic sells news, and so they create narratives that create moral, moral panic because that creates that creates viewing viewership. AODMediaWatch.com.au is the website, and you can read those articles uh, and the one that we're just about to play, or the compliments, the one we're just about to play. Um, all there. Hey, Steve, thanks very much for um, the update. And uh, uh, how how is it not being in isolation in WA? You were just telling me. That that the uh, Australian Psychedelic Society over in uh, Perth uh, had had a nice little social meetup, and I was just reading an article telling me that if I leave my suburb, um, I'm, I could get fined seventeen hundred dollars. Uh, nice <laughs> juxtaposition. 
Uh, look, Dick, I, I don't want to rub it in, um, but there is still there there is still confusion here and uncertainty. So t- tonight there's going to be a football game at our stadium with thirty thousand people, mm-hmm. and um, that there is some concern that that you know if if we do have cases that might have come over from over east in Western Australia because we've only recently cancelled twenty six thousand permits for people to come over, um, you know if, if because of it, it has that long incubation period, this could be like our mass spreading incident, and so but people don't want to be alarmed and so there's a lot of confusion so even at the the event last night everybody was really uncomfortable when you walked up to people because like do you shake someone's hand do you not shake someone's hand so we're still we're still we are very lucky we're able to go out and do things but we're still very awkward when we go out and there's still a lot of concern around just how much um, social or physical distancing we should be engaging in because as we've seen in Melbourne you just don't know how quickly these things can all fall apart and you know having 30,000 people at the football stadium might not be the best idea when we're still not 100% sure what's going on. It's trying times um, I hope well I hope it doesn't um, spread across uh, Perth I hope it stays, uh, stays relatively COVID free uh, over there and um uh, yeah, I'm going to spend the next four weeks doing this in my lounge room um, and uh, tending to my new pigeons. Um, Steve, thanks for joining us on Psychedelia today. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me. Dr. Stephen Bright is a Senior Lecturer of Addiction at Edith Cowan University and Senior Research Fellow at the National Drug Research Institute in Curtin University. Also founder of AODMediaWatch.com.au, uh, which you'll be hearing a segment from very shortly um, that is skewed over by the Daily Telegraph. This is what I did. Right now, though, some music, some Australian music from the Blue Mountains. This is Ape Suit with Bow Valley. And if you want to support these guys, you can download their music uh, from um, www.uncomfortablebeats.com. You're on 3CR.
G'day, this is John Safran and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Radical Radio. The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231-3365 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Welcome to AOD Media Watch. AODmediawatch.com.au is run by researchers and clinicians who work in the field and who want to see an improvement in the way issues on drugs are reported in the mainstream media. In 2019, there was a New South Wales coronial investigation into the death of six young Australians at music festivals across the state. Both Dr Monica Barrett and Dr Stephen Bright gave testimony. Stephen recently wrote a piece on aodmediawatch.com.au about his experience of getting thrown under the bus by the Daily Telegraph. Author and journalist Jenny Valentish was on board to review this article. So let's get into it. Steve, what happened? So I was requested to give oral evidence at the coronial investigation. So um, I flew to from Perth to Sydney, and I hopped off the plane in Sydney and I was walking out of the airport. I saw the Daily Telegraph on the stand and on the front page was a story that I was featured in, which shocked me um, because it said that I'd already given evidence in court the previous day and that I was one of several experts accused of skewing data. And just this idea of skewing data, particularly in academia, implies a significant breach of integrity. Though 
More concerning was an accompanying editorial that said the families of the deceased may take issue with my evidence. In oral evidence, I'd flown from Perth to Sydney out of respect for these families, not to upset them. Fortunately for me, Monica had provided oral evidence to court the day that I had seen this piece and was able to allay some of my concerns once I got in contact with her at the end of that day. I spent half a day at the coroner's court this was, and it was on that day that I was actually due to give evidence that they uh, had featured Steve in the paper. Um, and so I was on the stand for two hours in the morning and my colleague, um, Associate Professor Caitlin Hughes, joined me and we took up most of the day actually. Um, and there was a large contingent of families there of, of the deceased. It was it was quite surreal to begin with and, and, and just how many um, family members were there um, to, to, to see what was going on and, and, and that were listening to, to the evidence that I was giving there. I especially remember um, actually Callum Brosman, Brosman's father. Uh, Callum was one of, the, one of the deceased who took a large number of capsules uh, allegedly and allegedly nine capsules. And it was just, it was really quite... Um, it was amazing to meet with these parents because they had a genuine sense of firstly just wanting to work out what happened but also wanting to stop this from happening again and therefore they were really interested in understanding, you know, the researchers like Steve and I that were coming to talk about what we could do differently in terms of um, drug policy reform. One of the things that was first said by the coroner um, at the start was that she had seen the Daily Telegraph that morning and was, you know, distressed by it. Uh, I don't remember whether she used the, the terms contempt of court, but she was definitely distressed by it and concerned by the behaviour of that um, publication that morning. Freelance journalist Jenny Valentish was one of the reviewers of the AOD Media Watch piece. What do you think went wrong with the uh, Daily Telegraph's response and what could they have done better? I think in the first instance that for a journalist to write experts have been accused of skewing data and then to only name one expert is at the very least carelessness and it verges on negligence. Um, obviously there's the inaccuracy uh, saying that Steve was in court and he hadn't been in court. Um, the, the other obvious point is as the only person who was named in that context, Steve, were you actually approached for comment? No, 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 I, no I wasn't. I wasn't approached for comment. Because there's no way if I wrote something like that, that my editor wouldn't have asked me to do that. That's why I raised that. And also the use of the word skewed. Um, obviously, for, for a researcher, that's a particularly devastating uh, way of using it. But um, to me, I'm not an academic. And, and I would interpret skewing the data as meaning it's misrepresented the data or it's even falsified the data. And I'm, I'm so I'm surprised that the APC didn't think the same. Because even if you don't use skewed in an academic context, it still means twisted, it means distorted, and it means not straight. Stephen, you filed a formal complaint with um, Australia's press regulator, the Australian Press Council. Uh, it's my understanding that since AOD Media Watch launched in 2016, this is the first time that you or anybody from AOD Media Watch has actually uh, gone through that, that formal process. Um, was the reporting the worst that AOD Media Watch has come across? No, I don't think it's the worst <laughs> reporting we've covered. 
But this time it was personal. I was upset when I hopped off the plane because I thought I'd gone to all of this effort to come over to Sydney and I felt like this effort had been misguided. But more importantly, I'd been accused of skewing data and if that's true, I could be held in contempt of court or even lose my job for breaching academic integrity. And so this allegation could affect my future as a researcher and I wanted it retracted. More importantly for me, I wasn't even mentioned in this report that they were reporting on in the Daily Telegraph. So there's a group of researchers called the Scots who had presented a report. Um, I was informed that given I wasn't part of that report that they were reporting on, given that I was sort of thrown under the bus without being part of the group that were being reported on, I was informed that I had a potential defamation case should I wish to spend the time and money on that. But I was also given some very sage advice that it's always best to try and resolve these matters outside of court. After all, the only people that really win in a lawsuit case are the lawyers. So you went through the formal process um, with the Australian Press Council. Uh, what, what was that process like? The process begins by lodging an online form and you outline how the publication has breached the Australian Press Council's principles. Um, they then collect further information from the complainant and the publisher and decide if it needs to go to a formal hearing, which they call an adjudication. So my complaint seemed to be taken quite seriously as late last year they held one of these adjudications into my complaint. At this formal hearing, when the Daily Telegraph's journalist, um, Jeanette, was asked why I'd been singled out when I was not mentioned in the Scott and Scott's report, she said that it was because my, my written submission was so good. Apparently, being really good at your job in our field places one at being at risk of being thrown under the bus by the media. And I have deep respect for, for, for Monica um, and, and her submission. And I thought there were plenty of other submissions than mine. So I was really wondering why why it was that I'd been thrown under the bus. It was a nasty thing to do. Um, but look, I've certainly experienced, uh, and indeed it was, was it, it was even in that same day or, or perhaps earlier that week that the Daily Telegraph had me on the front page, they spelt my name wrong, they had taken one line out of my 10 pages um, where I made the obvious point, which I think does need to be made regularly, that if MDMA were legally available, then we wouldn't have to have this conversation about drug checking and drug testing. Now that got <laughs> transformed into uh, doctor pushes to legalise MDMA and drug testing stations. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just took that one on the chin and went, well, okay, that wasn't exactly what I said, but it was not particularly accurate because I wasn't actually calling for that in this article. I was simply stating the obvious, that if there was regulated supply, we wouldn't have be having these discussions about not knowing the content and purity of our drugs. The way that you were, the, the wording, the use of skewed, all of those things really personalise it. It's not just like what happened to me was just they just got it a bit wrong and they pushed it a bit so they could get a nice headline. They had, I had this headline about me and they didn't contact me to comment so, you know, um, this was all in the same week. So maybe it's just part of the course for this particular publication. What was the uh, outcome of the complaint to the Australian Press Council, Stephen? On February 27th, I got the verdict. 
Um, and the Australian Press Council found in favour of the Daily Telegraph. And it's hardly a surprise when you realise that the Australian Press Council is run by the media. They're an industry-regulated body. So it'd be a bit, a bit like submitting a complaint about alcohol advertising to the alcohol industry regulated drink-wise. The Australian Press Council ruled that the Daily Telegraph had provided an accurate summary of the Scots report. And in doing so, the press council sided with the Daily Telegraph, who'd argued that it had used the word skew in the ordinary sense of the word and with the intent of writing to an audience of ordinary readers. I just, I, I mean, I can't even make ones and twos of why you would say that an ordinary reader would not consider that to be uh, behaving without integrity. What, what do we think of integrity now? So the Australian Press Council sided with the Daily Telegraph. The adjudication from the Australian Press Council has, has singled you out, but because um, they, they've caught, also included you in a group, they've said that that was not misleading. I mean, what, what do you think of this? Um, Such a prominent story. It was a front page story. So there was absolutely no excuse not to contact Stephen and give him a right of reply. He's very easy to find. It's as if, and I don't know if they meant to do this, if they did this deliberately by placing that phrase for one of a number of experts in there because what it did was it enabled the Australian Press Council to say that this therefore doesn't really apply to Steve only and therefore the case is not valid. I think in any, any person's mind, when they look at the front page of a newspaper and the only academic who is mentioned in relation to a statement is this person, they're going to see differently. And so that, to me, it's a technicality and it's a technicality that has meant that you know, justice has not been done in this case. To be honest, I, I was devastated that the, the system had let me down. I felt like the Australian Press Council had let me down. And so I actually contacted Paul Barry from ABC's Media Watch because, after all, the premise of AOD Media Watch is based on his show. And he told me that the level of poor reporting from the Daily Telegraph and the sort of decision being made by the Australian Press Council needed to be a whole lot worse than what it was for them to be able to include it on their show, which is fair enough because, you know, this was clearly something that was personal to me and there's a lot of poor reporting going on that ABC Media Watch needs to cover. So I did the only thing left that I really had available to me. I contacted the AOD Media Watch core group and asked if they thought it would be appropriate and they would support me to write up this experience in the hope that it might encourage other people to stand up to the media. I mean, it's sort of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You want to get your message out there. If you say no to all media and you want something, you want to get a message out there, then you know that that means you're not going to be as likely to get that message out there. But if you say yes, then you're at the whims of those people who are producing that piece. You can't control exactly what's going to come out. You're not in editorial control. Jenny, you've written extensively on AOD-related issues uh, as a freelance journalist and uh, the other side of AOD Media Watch is to provide um, resources and information for uh, journalists uh, or other people that might be wanting to report on these sorts of issues. Um, what sorts of tips do you have for those wanting to um, report on AOD issues um, so that they can engage uh, more closer with evidence-based reporting uh, and avoid spreading misinformation and fear. 
Actually, when Monica was saying um, experts are kind of damned if they don't talk and damned if they do, first thing I thought was more often than not, experts aren't sought out at all. Um, Often a drug-related story will basically be uh, a journalist rehashing a police press release and not sort of corroborating any of that. Um, So um, AOD Media Watch actually supplies experts in the drug and alcohol field or at least can recommend people who are available to talk of balances needed in a story uh, for corroboration, clarification. Um, There's also guidelines for journalists to make sure that their reporting on drugs is accurate and not stigmatising. And Mindframe also have guidelines for reporting on drug use. Um, And I think in this day and age when journalists... Uh, are much more careful about writing about mental health issues and suicide and eating disorders and, and, and really pay heed to guidelines around that. There's a lot of catching up that needs to be done when it comes to writing about drug use. I guess I've learned that you can stand up to bullies in the media and I've also learned that my colleagues have got my back as after, during this process and, you know, after the publication on AOD Media Watch, I got messages of support from people including Paul Barry, my BBC Media Watch, Dr. Alex Wodak, Monica, Dr. David Keldicott, Dr. Stuart McClay. There were just so many people that reached out. Um, and it made me reflect that I've got my colleagues' backs too. When you talk to journalists about drugs, the story's not always going to come out as you might hope. Um, look at the recent example of the Ben Cousins piece in which one of my colleagues, Carol Dawes, provided the expert commentary. And while this was a shocking piece of journalism, had she not provided the expert commentary, they would have found somebody else to call the expert. And perhaps that person would have further contributed to the moralistic drugs bad narrative that wasn't evidence-based. So we can't let this we can't let this sort of behaviour stop us from engaging with the media. We need to support each other and we need to call out the media when they've reached their own standards. We, we can't let this sort of behaviour stop us as, as researchers and consumers or whoever we might be from engaging with the media. We need to support each other and we need to call out the media when they breach their own standards. Even if the outcome wasn't what I'd hoped for in this case, if more of us complain to the Australian Press Council when the media aren't meeting that standard, then perhaps the publications will start to take more notice and be more careful in the way that they report these issues. The piece is being skewed over by the Daily Telegraph. This is what I did, available at aodmediawatch.com.au, where you can also find resources uh, if you're a journalist or resources if you're somebody who wants to reach out and speak to the media. And that's um, really the, the message we want to end on here, uh, that it's important to engage with the media, important to get your voice out there and your voice uh, included amongst that cacophony of voices and sometimes to go through those processes like with the Australian Press Council. Uh, The reviewers of this piece were Jenny Valentish, freelance journalist, and Dr Monica Barrett, RMIT University. And you can view the full video of that AOD Media Watch segment at our YouTube channel in Psychedelia on YouTube. Uh, Just go have a look for us there. Um, It is in Psychedelia. My name's Nick. Uh, You're on 3CR. Uh, If you want to find out more that you've uh, heard on the program, 3cr.org.au is the website. Um, Go and find our program page. You can subscribe to our podcast there and find out more info. Uh, Up soon, a little bit from EGA live stream. Right now, though, some Missy Higgins with Tim Minchin. You're on 3CR. If they will let me trade, I'd give it for half a day. Just curled up on the sofa with you. 
We'd wander down the cottage slow, eat fish and chips in the final glow. I'd hold my breath for I forgive you. Sometimes I feel you with me in the dark, and your face is in the faces of the strangers walking by me. Reflected in your eyes is all my love and all my lies. Is all my promise and my pride. Is all my fear and all my fight. Is all my dread and my denial. And though we cannot be together, I know that I. With Tim Minchin, carry you. It's in psychedelia on 3CR, 3cr.org.au, 855am, and 3CR Digital. My name's Nick, uh, and if you want to find out more information about things we've been talking about on the program, find our program page at 3cr.org.au. Uh, follow the links to our social media and podcasts, which you can follow as well. Uh, final segment for today before we finish up this afternoon and with Queering the Air up next. Um, I caught up with uh, Dennis Bekenner as part of the Entheogenesis Australis live stream. Um, it was difficult. I was running a lot of things um, straight from my uh, lounge room with not much assistance. I had to do tech as well as the interview. But I started off by asking Dennis, um, as an ethnobotanist, uh, what was his uh, favourite Australian plant? Um, and he gave an answer that's familiar to many of us. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say a favourite plant, but uh, I'm, I'm partial to the acacias. Uh, uh, you know, and, and as you, uh, and I guess the, the generic term is wattle. 
And as you know, uh, many of these acacias are sources of uh, tryptamines, some of the most potent uh, tryptamine sources in, in the world, actually. And uh, in, in 2017, you have a, you have a uh, self-taught scholar in your organization who you undoubtedly know, Snoo Vogelbrinder. He goes by that name, and he is literally a scholar of these acacias. And when I organized this uh, ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs symposium in the UK in 2017, we had enough in the budget to bring him out, and he gave a wonderful talk on these acacias and then published his paper in the, in the proceedings. So... If uh, Snoo, if you're in the audience, I'd like to give a shout out to you. Uh, you have a, he's a brilliant man. He does not have academic credentials. But fortunately, psychoethnobotany is one of these areas where you don't need credentials. You know, you, you can get very far as a quote unquote amateur. How's coronavirus been for you? What, has, it, has it slowed down your projects? I know that there was something, and maybe you can talk to us a little bit about your new project in the Amazon. But, uh, yeah, I mean, where's that all at with, uh, you know, uh, the apocalypse? Well, personally, COVID has been okay for me and my wife. It's just the two of us. We have been distancing uh, and uh, staying indoors as much as possible. But, you know, for me, it's weirdly normal because basically I'm in my basement all the time working online anyway. So just another day. The, the difference is that when you go out, you have to be more careful. Uh, so, you know, it hasn't been too bad uh, in that respect. But in terms of the stuff I like to do, and uh, we'll probably get into talking about the McKenna Academy which is this new nonprofit I've just recently founded about a year ago. And a lot of what we want to do with the McKenna Academy is, of course, do retreats and conferences. It's basically an educational organization. We want to educate people about plant medicines, coevolution, symbiosis, all these good things. And we had four retreats planned to uh, do in the Sacred Valley of Peru this year. All of that's been canceled. Uh, and we don't know when we're going to be able to start doing physical conferences again. So in the meantime, we've pivoted to trying to develop an online presence, a strong online presence, which has always been part of our agenda. This has just forced us to focus on that and hope for the best when it comes to doing other conferences. But, uh, you know, British Columbia has their, you know, I, I immigrated up here about a year ago. They have their act together. I mean, Canada in general has their act together with respect to COVID and British Columbia especially. You know, they have very uh, strong public health program here. And being Canadians, you know, people have a sense of the common good and so they're willing to cooperate uh, for the common good and stay masked, stay separate, isolated if that's necessary. And because of that, uh, Canada's been able to bring the curve down. Unlike the United States, where if you pay any attention, it's completely out of control, you know, right now. I mean, it's the worst country, uh, the U.S. and Brazil. And I think in part it's because 
despite the lip service paid, you know, American society really doesn't have a strong sense of the common good. You know, and, and Canada's always emphasized the message the Premier Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau is putting out is we're all in this together, you know, and that's a very common sense message. And the U.S. Uh, mindset is like, we're not in this together. Do whatever you damn want, you know, whatever you damn please. And unfortunately, our our president, um, you know, that's the message that he propagates. So no wonder it's out of control. You know, this is this is not the, uh, you know, it, it's just, that's just the way it is. But you know, it's a reflection of of uh, you know that sort of individual liberty mindset that is going on in the states. That seems to be you know how it is. So you know, unfortunately, uh, the virus. You know, as a result of this. Uh, the U.S. has become kind of a pariah in the world. Uh, you know, the the EU and Canada have both prohibited travel to uh, from anyone in the states. Cannot go there. Mexico even has prohibited travel for people from the states, and I think that's likely to continue until they get this thing under control. And that I don't see that happening for at least the rest of the year. A lot of the systems that have been set up over the past 100 years or so that, that are driven off this sort of industrial world that we live in are, are really um, buckling. And a lot of what we've been doing, especially economically and financially for the past 30 years, has been about this, uh, this assertion of individualism as the, uh, you know, as the, as the goal that we need to uh, privatise everything, that we need to ha- focus on the individual. Um, but one of the... One of the sort of lessons um, that many people, I'm sure, one of the experiences that many people have with um, with various different plants is the uh, is an experience of um, uh, interconnectivity. I'm just wondering, what what do you think? Um, what do the plants have to teach us about what's going on right now? Uh, the other part of this is I've noticed a lot of... I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, as I'm sure a lot of people have been, um, and I've noticed that this idea has come up in a few different uh, podcasts now, and I think it was actually uh, when you were here in 2012 that was the first time I came across this idea um, and understanding that we've sort of overlaid this individualism onto the, onto the world around us um, and, and said, uh, you know, it's... a uh, 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 it's a it's it's a world of a survival of the fittest. It's always about whoever can can survive and be the most almost ruthless, uh, and that's how our, our yeah. capitalist system works. But now we're finding that actually below the surface uh, things are much more interconnected. One of the uh, one of the main lessons, one of the main uh, take home lessons that we can learn from the plant medicines, because for some reason they. Uh, you know, they help us become aware, as you say, of the interconnectedness of all living things. And this is a wake-up call to our species. You know, and, and this is uh, this is always what I say. We're engaged in a co-evolutionary process. But implicit in the, in the notion of co-evolution is cooperation and symbiosis. And... The challenges that face our planet, um, uh, you know, in the environmental crisis is basically because we've forgotten this, you know, that we are participants uh, 
in this coevolutionary process and that, you know, we need to wake up. We need to learn how to get along with all sentient species and, and direct our energy toward the preservation of, of balance and harmony on the global scale. It's now completely out of, out of balance. And this is basically because we've been poisoned by a number of assumptions in the Western mindset, basically, you know, whether it comes from the Abrahamic religions or even earlier sources, but the idea that, you know, we're not part of nature and we own it. It's, it exists for us to dominate and exploit and ultimately destroy, you know, and we're, we're well along in that process. And I think the plant medicines to those that are privileged enough and lucky enough <clears throat> to be able to have these psychedelic experiences, I think the message comes through loud and clear that no, in fact, you monkeys are not in control. You know, you're not running things. Mostly the plants are running things, you know, because of their ability to photosynthesize. And that's what sustains life on Earth. That brings cosmic energy into the biosphere and, and this miracle of photosynthesis enables plants to make complex organic compounds from carbon dioxide and water using sunlight as a as a as a catalyst and create the vast array of uh, organic compounds that we find in plants and that basically is those are the molecules of life and we owe plants this and uh but, you know, I think actually the lesson to be drawn from the COVID virus is simply this. You know, if you haven't been listening to the plant medicines or you forgot their lesson, COVID comes along and says, oh, this is a reminder. You're not the boss, right? We humans are not the boss. Nature is running the show. And nature in the form of the virus is uh, kind of kicking us upside the head, you know, and saying the message is pay attention. And also, you know, I, I think the message to the human species in some way is slow down. We have to look for more sustainable ways to live on this planet because you know, they, 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 it, all of the homeostatic mechanisms that keep things in balance are seriously strained right now and have been for the last 30 years. 30 years ago, we knew this was coming. You know, 30 years ago, we had the luxury of thinking, well, it won't be, you know, it'll be a while. We don't have to worry about this. Well, guess what? Here we are. And... We don't have 30 years. We have maybe 10 years if we're lucky, maybe a little longer than that. So, you know, I, I think I, I do. I am a believer in, in sort of the Gaia hypothesis and the idea that the community of planetary species is an intelligent uh, super organism. You might call it. There's a term in biology for that. And it will do what it needs to do to preserve itself. And so, you know, what we're, uh, what we're seeing is essentially a, mess, a message from Gaia that, you know, the planet is in great danger and we as a species are in great danger if we don't uh, change our act, as it were.
This is in Psychedelia. For more information, visit Encyclopedia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.